Everybody today? Ready to go? Welcome to Texas. Some of you already are here. The rest of us flew in or drove in. Welcome to Austin. I've never been here. It's exciting to be able to visit this famous city. And I haven't been to Texas in years, and I realize that Texas has such a big position on the national stage that I feel like I'm here all the time. <laughs> I'm Catherine Kane. I'm the executive director of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford, Connecticut, and I am uh, in the honored position of ASLH's council chair. So my job this morning is to uh, uh, do a couple of things, but most of all, welcome you to ASLH's 2017 annual, 2017 annual meeting. As you all know, ASLH provides leadership and support for its members who preserve and interpret state and local history to make the past more meaningful for us all. In this age when history and historic issues are daily in the headlines, when Americans are struggling with questions of heritage and identity, the work of ASLH and of all of you is more important than ever. And part of that work, we must recognize, is gathering together, as we do at this annual meeting, where we share news and experiences, we ask questions of one another, and we encourage one another. It's the bonds that we build together at ASLH that builds the trust that helps us as we do our work of making the past more meaningful and understandable for today and, of course, for the future. Thank you all. Keep it up. Push the boundaries. Stretch. Try things. Listen to your public, especially the ones who don't visit. At the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, we work daily with our community, demonstrating how the past is present and asking them to work on social issues that they care about, especially issues of equity and justice. So I'm excited and honored to hear our speaker this morning, as I know that you are. But first, I want to tell you about ASLH's fund for Hurricane Harvey recovery. Just a week ago, staff pulled together the opportunity for all of us to give to support this important fund, which will go, 100% of the dollars will go to culturals that have been affected by Hurricane Harvey. And we have friends and colleagues who are not here at this meeting because they are digging out their houses, tearing off the drywall, or trying to get the water out, or deciding what, what treasured artifacts and possessions, what part of their collections in their households have to go, or their businesses. It's heartbreaking. So I want you to know that 100% of the AASLH Council has given to this fund. 100% of the AASLH staff has given to this fund. And I encourage 100% of you to pull out your phones right now, go to the ASLH website, and give. Give till it hurts, because things like this might happen to you. So do it now. <laughs> Don't forget. It's really important. I want you to know also that we have over $8,000 already in the fund over just the past few days. And now it's my honor to introduce 
Laura Casey. Laura is with the Texas Historical Commission, but her special role with ASLH this year is co-chair of the local host committee. Laura, will you take the podium? Good morning, everybody. Oh, come on, we can do better than that. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. On behalf of my co-chair, Margaret Cook, and the local host committee, I want to welcome everybody to Austin and the great state of Texas. We are so happy that you're finally here. Seems like we've been planning for a while, and I just want to take a moment to thank everybody on the local host committee. They've worked so hard to make this meeting a fun and enjoyable event. It's definitely a labor of love. We've all enjoyed every minute of it, but it has taken uh, a little bit of time and energy. So thank you, Margaret. Thank you, everybody who served on the local host committee. Uh, we have a really great meeting planned, terrific sessions, fantastic speakers, and one-of-a-kind events and tours that you're only going to experience while you're here in Austin, Texas. And I hope everyone can join us tonight while uh, we are at the Bob Bullock... Uh, <laughs> It's such a long name. <laughs> the Bullock Museum, the history of Texas. It's just across the street from the from the AT&T Conference Center. So, welcome to Texas. We hope you have a great time. Thank you for joining us here in Austin. And now I want to introduce Dina Bailey, CEO of Mountaintop Vision. Uh, she is also this year's 2017 program chair of the meeting this year and also member of the AASLH Council. Dina. Thank you, everyone, and welcome. Thanks for getting up early this morning and making your way over here. Just like um, everyone else, I want to welcome you to Texas. I want to thank you for coming to our meeting. Specifically for our program committee as program chair, I want to send all of my thanks for what I know is going to be a fabulous conference. I think as many of you have seen in some of the writings about the conference and the theme that I really want us to push our boundaries a little bit. I want us to think differently with the idea of I am history. So thank you for the program committee who really made that possible. Thank you to the host committee, to the ASLH staff and volunteers, and of course to my fellow council members as well. We are going to be talking to Darren Walker today. He is the president of Ford Foundation, the nation's second largest philanthropy, and for two decades he has been a leader in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors. He led the phil philanthropy committee that helped bring a resolution to the city of Detroit's historic bankruptcy and chairs the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Prior to joining Ford, he was the vice president at the Rockefeller Foundation, where he managed the rebuild of New Orleans Initiative after Hurricane Katrina. In the 1990s, a COO of Harlem's largest community development organization, Darren oversaw a comprehensive revitalization program of central Harlem, including over 1,000 new units of housing. 
He had dedicated a, dedicated a decade-long career in international law and finance at Cleary, Gottlieb, Steen, and Hamilton, and UBS. He is a member of the Commission on the Future of Rikers Island and serves on the boards of Carnegie Hall, New York City Ballet, the High Line, and Arcus Foundation, and PepsiCo. Educated exclusively in public schools, Darren received the Distinguished Alumnus Award, the highest honor given by his alma mater, the University of Texas at Austin. In 2016, Time Magazine named him to its annual list of the 100 most influential people in the world. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the recipient of 13 honorary degrees and university awards. And I happen to get to ask him questions today. So without further ado, Darren, if you will join me up here, we've got some questions. We are just going to get started with the deep stuff, just getting right into it. I've been telling people that I started writing with my first draft some softball questions, and Darren came back and he's like, yeah, let's talk about something a little more challenging. So we're just going to get into it. Know that you're, you're in this journey with me. Whatever we talk about, we're all in it together, OK? So with that. <laughs> Get ready for the ride, right? This is like a roller coaster. Uh, so first, we already said that you went to University of Texas, and I want to acknowledge that you are a Texan. Yes. This past week, there has been a lot of news that has hit home for you, certainly. Um, we can talk about Hurricane Harvey. We can talk about the cancellation of DACA, um, to name just two of the things that are affecting Texas in particular. And so, I want to say in, in 1965, James Baldwin said, history does not refer merely to the past. History is literally present in all that we do, which I think goes along with our theme. How does the quote and what's happening in the United States today make you mindful of the fact that we are caught between the history from which we emerge and the history that we aspire to? Thank you, Dina, and good morning, everyone. I am so excited to be back in Austin because for me, this city transformed my life and this university gave me a window on the world for a little a boy from a little town in Southeast Texas between Houston and Beaumont to have the uh, great chance in 1978 to turn up on this campus um, for what uh, was for me an absolutely transformational experience and the doors of the world opened to me as a result of my coming to this great university. So I'm always um, filled with gratitude whenever I return to Austin, but also overwhelmed by the change of things. It's remarkable. Uh, but I'm really grateful for this um, invitation and the chance to talk with all of you. And thank you, Dina, for all of the hard work you put into this and, and Catherine and everyone, thank you. So the question that you ask um, at this moment is a particularly challenging uh, question because I think um, it goes to the heart of who we are as a people. And I think we Americans are very proud people. We have tremendous pride because we have been perceived, going back to de Tocqueville, 
as an exceptional society in many ways. And that exceptionalism has generated over time narratives about our exceptionalism and about how special we are as a people and how unique the actual American experiment is. And that American experiment is, is of course, continues to be a work in progress. But that, that narrative has, has necessitated this notion of, uh, of exceptionalism. And it's very hard for a people who, who believe that there is some, something really exceptional about them and their journey as a nation to make room for painful, challenging counter-narratives that are also a part of that history. Because I am tremendously proud of being an American, and I know that my story and my journey could only happen in this country. And so for that reason, I actually believe in this idea that there is something special about this country. I believe that actually what is special about it is our ability to continue to broaden the circle of opportunity, of justice, and that that is a struggle because of the imperfections of the narrative. And reconciling those two narratives, the narrative of exceptionalism, perfection, and, and a sort of a, this notion that, that, that there is something so uniquely imbued in our culture with the, the flaws that were baked in from the beginning and the contradictions that were articulated in our very founding documents is really hard for us to do. And, you know, I'm reminded of this because I uh, was speaking in, in Germany at, at a conference and this person said, well, we're talking about racial issues in, in the United States. And this person said, well, in Germany, we were we completely embrace the injustices that we perpetrated as Germans. Uh, what we did to Jews, what we did to other minorities and marginalized people in German society. And there isn't a city in Germany where you don't go where there is a marker that the German people have, have placed in recognition of the wrongs they committed to other Germans. It's really hard for Americans, white Americans, to embrace the idea that we should be marking injustice, that we should seek to call attention to injustices perpetrated by Americans to other Americans. And that is the core challenge from the standpoint of history and heritage. How do we reconcile those two narratives? They are reconcilable and they, 
they don't together diminish how special we are. I actually believe it makes us special. I actually believe our ability to reconcile our history is a part of what is unique and special because our history is unique. And you don't, the, the particular features of our culture and our history are unique. And the solution to reconciling is also unique. And so I think that I, I regret that my country is unable, that it took after countless attempts. It was not until 2008 that the United States House of Representatives could muster the votes to apologize for slavery. I mean, 2008. There were hundreds of resolutions and attempts since the ending of slavery to introduce just a resolution into Congress where Congress would simply, as a body, say this was wrong and we apologize. We could not muster the will as a Congress, as a nation, to do that literally until 2008. So I think that is uh, a profound manifestation of this challenge of reconciling our history. I think that that really goes in well to my next question, because here we are in 2017, and with this theme, I am history, um, we, it would be disingenuous if we did not talk about things that will surely be in our history books 100 years from now, right? Um, the discussion of Charlottesville, the discussion of Confederate monuments, this will be a part of our history and we are all living it right now. And I know for many of us, uh, people come, either our, our colleagues or people in the community, and they say, how did we get here? How did we get to this moment right now? And I know that it's been hard for a lot of us to say, well, you know, there was this fact and then that fact, and this is how we got here, but how would you answer the climate that we're in right now? How did we get here? Well, I think that there is, you know, you all are historians and professionals. I'm merely an amateur at all of this. But from my perspective, I think so much about who we are is about our identity. And we have, no matter where we are in, uh, in society and whatever unit of society we talk about, we want to have pride in our history. And we, we mythologize a lot of things. We do it in our families. I mean, I remember growing up and there was a particular family member who, you know, was really problematic. And, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, a couple of years ago, we were at some family reunion or there was some conversation and, you know, my grandmother was waxing eloquently about this family member and how, and it was this whole sort of thing that was just completely devoid of reality in some way. <laughs> but it was very important in that moment 
for her as the matriarch to speak pridefully about her family, even though it was populated with some people who were pretty <laughs> problematic, right? But it was very important to her. And we all do that. We all romanticize and mythologize our histories and our narratives because we need that. And that's, that is, makes sense to me. Right? I mean, I remember in college, right up the road here, you know, I had a friend who was in a fraternity and, you know, every year he would dress up in a Confederate uniform to go to their party. And I thought that was problematic. <laughs> but, but he wasn't a racist. That organization, that fraternity, was about his identity and belonging and his need, the need that we all have for community. And, and so how we talk about how we got here without acknowledging that or demonizing people for particular narratives. So I'm, I understand why a white Southerner who, whose ancestor uh, fought in the Confederacy would, on the face of that, have pride because the, the narrative about that lost cause is, is a very romantic narrative in some way. And, and it's been propagated to actually be even more romantic than it actually was. And so when you, when you talk to people about, for example, that issue of the Confederacy, it is really difficult. Because as an American, I would not see any effort to destroy the United States of America as a noble cause which was the objective of the Confederacy. It was to destroy the United States of America. And so I wouldn't, it's, it's difficult for me to, to romanticize that because it was seeking to destroy the United States of America in order to create another country that would expand and sustain the bondage of other Americans. And so I, I find it really challenging to, to come away from those facts feeling a sense of pride. Now, I'm not a white man who has forebears who fought in that. But I do hope that, because in order for us to reconcile and get from where we are now to a better place, we have to be willing to engage. And we, and I will use my accept, myself, we African Americans, for example, who have very strong views about that, have to also not demonize white people as racists necessarily because they have bought into that narrative. And so how we, how all of us understand 
what we need in order to get from here, and that each of us has a role to play in doing that. And each of us has a role in creating the space and the responsibility for that lies with all of us. It doesn't just lie with the daughters of the Confederacy. I mean, it, it lies with all of us. And I think for me then, that gets into my next question as well, because I think that it is complicated and it is difficult to talk about and it does make us as individuals uncomfortable, but it also makes us as professionals sometimes uncomfortable. But in a lot of the writings that I have seen from you, you seem to emphasize leadership and empowerment. And so I'm thinking about um, to all of us as individuals, to us as a group of museum professionals, um, you as a foundation, what is needed in terms of leadership on the individual level, on the museum field level, from foundations? What is needed in terms of leadership today? Well, I think courage is needed. I, it, is, it is very difficult to lead with courage today because all of you are leaders. And for many of you, you're actually disincentivized to lead with courage. I mean, the systems, uh, the structures around us constrain our capacity to actually speak up, speak out, be bold. Because there is greater risk today, I believe, for leaders. It is far more difficult to lead today. I think about my partner's father was chairman of the board of Colonial Williamsburg and, you know, He's, he was CEO of a big company in the heydays of, you know, being a white man from Harvard Business School ruled the world, right? I mean, and so I know that Colonial Williamsburg was a less complicated place to manage 25 years ago <laughs> than it is today. And, and, and he would be challenged, profoundly challenged, and, and incapable of, of reconciling the complexity of leadership in the kinds of institutions that all of you manage. Because it requires a capacity for complexity, you are a coach, a community outreach worker, you are a fundraiser, you are a professional, credentialed professional. And the perspectives, because so much of the American narrative is owned by people like you, is it's why all of you have education programs. It's why all of you speak in the public in your own communities. It's why all of you are prominent in your own communities because you are carriers of that American narrative. 
and the carriers of the American narrative who came before all of you were, were advancing a narrative that was far more straightforward, far less complicated, far less honest and real and reflecting the complexity of the American narrative. And so for all of you and for people who are today the writers, the people who are propagating and telling our story, it's much more difficult because leadership has been, and the narrative, rather than integrated, gets framed as oppositional. That if you are for this, you must be against that. And that's the, that is a very difficult paradigm in which to lead because you're constantly being challenged by people who want you to take their road. And really great leadership today is about how do we build those bridges? Uh, I think it's much harder to build a bridge than it is to build a wall. And leaders today, building walls is the easy way out. To lead today and to understand how we build bridges in our communities between peoples in our own communities themselves who don't have bridges. And so it's, it, is, it is a really difficult. But I think we have to speak up and speak out, as my good friend Congressman John Lewis reminds me, that progress won't be made unless we get uncomfortable. And saying to our boards, I mean, I can only project my own experience where I am, you know, constantly with my board, you know, sort of pushing the line. And, and it's because I feel like our boards can be very comfortable with the privilege that we have, with the privilege of service on the board, with the prestige and status that comes from that, with the sort of preservation mentality that uh, most boards bring, which is good. We want them to think about our institutions and how to ensure that we are there for the next generation. But we don't, what we need from our boards are people who want us to be bold and want our institutions to use our voices and to be comfortable crafting a new paradigm that brings together our, our traditional notions of history and heritage and culture and art and all of those ideas with our also contemporary notions of justice and equity and fairness and opportunity. Um, and that's kind of hard to do, as all of you know. <laughs> well, and I think based on that, I, I have a feeling what your answer may be, but I'm still going to ask the question. 
I think you're right that 10 years ago, museums were very different places. 20 years ago, museums were di very different places. So in the past, we have said museums are neutral spaces. They are a platform for this discussion. We don't have an opinion. Today, do you think that museums should be neutral? Do you think that museums can be neutral? That's a really interesting question, Dina, because I, you are right in saying that institutions like museums have said, We're neut we are neutral places. And I re I'm reminded because I was challenged once at a conference when this person uh, in the Q&A afterwards said, you know, why is the Ford Foundation uh, supporting all of these artists who politicize artwork? And our museums are not, should not be politicized by artists. And um, it, it, you know, the Ford Foundation and you know, the big critique of the Ford Foundation on identity politics. And it was really interesting because I said to this gentleman, you know, do you think that Picasso, like, there's no political message in, do you think that in those Gainsborough portraits, there isn't a message about class and whiteness and politics? Do you think that in Sargent's portraits, do you think that, you know, when was the voting party, that there is nothing, it's just a neutral, beautiful, and I think, again, this is the challenge of the narrative, because, because we, have, we have not been honest when we say that Museums have been neutral spaces, and now we have to become something else. Museums have always been political spaces. It has, it may not be the kind of uh, Kara Walker, Carrie Mae Weems, Glenn Ligon in your face <laughs> uh, kind of art, but it's naive and not honest when I hear a museum professional or a trustee who, because often what we are coming up against is the voice of privilege. Because we all are privileged. I am incredibly privileged. And privileged people and privileged institutions really don't like change. We really don't. I mean, in our own lives. I mean, I, I really, you know, I have lived without privilege, and I live with a lot of privilege. It is really good to have a lot of privilege. <laughs> no, I, and all of the incentives are for me to just think about how I compound my privilege. And it's really, and so when I, when I hear things from foundation people, including in my own institution, which is a very privileged foundation, you just see the manifestation of privilege. And when you, when you try to engage the, 
you know, this notion that you know, the most privileged of us are often the most invisible. Our privilege is most invisible to us, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. if you have a lot of privilege, it's likely that you don't even think about your privilege. Your privilege is invisible to you because you live with it every day. And yes, it's true you say, oh, to your children, you're very privileged and you, you know, we, but we really, in terms of how we think about the world, we kind of like our privilege. And so when you say to, to institutions, you need to change, which is part of the message, it is disruptive, it makes people feel vulnerable, and privileged people do not like feeling vulnerable. We don't like it. We have earned a way in which we can insulate our lives to be less vulnerable, and we like that. And so privileged institutions, museums, don't want to be vulnerable. Who wants to stand? I mean, we're having a situation in New York City now where our Commissioner of Cultural Affairs has issued a policy to all of the organizations. And in a city like New York where you know, our Department of Cultural Affairs just in New York City gives away more, more money than the NEA does nationally, almost every institution in New York receives money from Department of Cultural Affairs. And so he has said to these institutions through this new policy, basically, you have to change. And while people superficially embrace the idea to really internalize the change. The fact that at most of the museums, most of the people of color are in operations and the guards, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that at the Metropolitan Museum, there is not, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, there is not one African-American curator. And in the history of the Metropolitan Museum, there's only been one. The fact that these things, um, to overcome that, these institutions have to truly interrogate themselves. And it's really hard to get a board, because boards of these institutions are usually pretty privileged themselves. Mm -hmm. And that privilege then is made into a collective around a board table, and you're told, you need to change. And that takes courage. We've already talked about that. And I think that I want to get one more question before I open it up um, to a few of you all. And so this idea of courage, this need for change, what would be your call to action to all of us as museum professionals? And then what has been your call to action as a foundation? I think the call to action is a positive vision. I mean, I think we are bombarded with this idea in this political moment that something is being taken from us in terms of our heritage, and that is backward looking. And that to me is, it's almost un-American, because we have always been a forward-looking society. We've always thought about the future as something to embrace. 
And so we as leaders have to harness that uniquely American idea of embracing the future. And the future will be different, but that shouldn't scare us or make us feel less positive about our country. And part of that reality is our sense of identity and what is America. And I was reading a, a, a public opinion survey recently where I was surprised. Um, a significant number of people who were surveyed, a significant number of Americans said they weren't comfortable with the notion that American identity was changing. They weren't comfortable with the idea that American identity in the future was going to be browner, was going to be more diverse. And I think we have to speak to that, and not necessarily to people who just simply don't want change. But the idea that our nation will continue to evolve is a uniquely American idea. I mean, nowhere in the world does that exist, where a country's, the ethos of the nation is that we're going to continue to evolve. And there are going to be people from around the world coming to our country, and we're, as we always have. And the fact that more of those people are not white Europeans is not a reason not to look forward to our future. And, and so we as leaders have to have that kind of conversation because we have a responsibility and a fidelity to those very ideas in those challenging, flawed, yet beautiful and inspiring founding documents of this nation to continue to be positive and optimistic about the changing America, the evolving America, the expanding circle of America. That that is something that we as historians, as museum professionals, as the carriers of our culture should be advancing with enthusiasm, recognizing, again, that there are people who who don't really want to embrace that. So I don't mean to be naive, but I mean to say we should actually in this moment, during this particularly challenging time, be emboldened to advance that idea. And I'm going to ask, um, we have time for probably two questions, so it looks like there are microphones on either side. So if you'd like to ask a question, certainly come up. Um, and hoping to do it along the lines of, of what we've been talking about. How does the past meet the present in terms of what we can look forward to in the future? Go ahead, please. Good morning, and thank you so much, Mr. Walker, Ms. Bailey. Uh, my name is Omar Eaton Martinez. I work for the Smithsonian. And I wanted to ask, I mean, one of my comments, and it goes along with what you guys were saying, in terms of coming from our leadership and coming from the people that we serve, it takes a lot of repentance and humility that leads to reconciliation. And how do we kind of encourage that amongst our leaders and other people who have control of 
our wonderful institutions. My question is, how do you as a leader of color deal with white fragility when confronting systemic or individual racism? How do you, how do you deal with that um, in these situations when you're in these boardroom conversations, when you're meeting different uh, directors and leaders of these important organizations? How do you, um, what kind of conversations, what kind of thoughts do you have to yourself uh, to, to make sure that uh, people aren't, that, that the fact that they may be offended may not disrupt the objective of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for your question. I mean, I think this, the notion of leading with humility is a very important one. Leading with curiosity. And often, very successful people in our society today don't have much of either of those features. I mean, the, often, we are successful in our society uh, because we're not humble. <laughs> and um, we have role models um, all over our society and our culture of people who um, are leaders. Uh, and in fact, because of their success, they, um, they are insulated often from the uh, hard reality of, of truth telling. And so I often find that I am, uh, I, because of my privilege, am at tables and uh, rooms uh, with people like that. And you sometimes have to engage in a way that helps them realize that they're speaking from this position of privilege. And you have to also uh, offer up counter narratives uh, and be comfortable with the idea that you have to use your privilege in ways that are more disruptive than some others might. And that is, that is an additional burden. I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, I was on a nominating committee of an organization, a nominating committee meeting, and we were having this conversation about diversity, and I'm one of two African-Americans on the board, and, you know, and literally this New York billionaire who's on the, on the committee, we were talking about candidates, and he, he said, you know, can I just say, like, I don't know any black people other than you and Dick Parsons and Ken Chenault. And so I, what do you want me to do, right? I mean, and so what I thought was wonderful about that moment was I was able to thank him for his willingness to be vulnerable and to, to uh, speak to the fact that in order for the board to become more diverse, we were going to have to do something differently. Because in the past, we would only look at the net, through the networks of the trustees. And those networks produce the same results. And so it was only by saying, OK, so we all understand that actually on this board, we don't even have the capability to become a more diverse board, that for us to actually 
be more diverse is going to require some extraordinary action by the board. So if we agree on that, then let's go do it. But rather than, you know, hemming and hawing and, you know, digging in, I mean, I just think the ability to be able to meet people where they are, because often your trustees are good people. They want to do right to advance the organization's missions. But they bring their own issues and their own limitations and their own ideologies to the table. And I think for me personally, I see my responsibility in these rooms, at these tables, to be the person who says, okay, we've got to deal with this. And it's true, I often, you often hear people of color or women say, well, why does the burden for fixing this have to fall on us? You know, why does the, and I think it's, it's not the burden, it's recognizing that people are, we are all in a part of a system. And that system has produced some of the real challenges that we're trying to overcome. And regardless of where we sit, sure we may be more privileged, more wealthy or whatever, we all are ensnarled in that system. And we have to break patterns of, of behavior, past practice, and, and what we have to do as leaders is to say that, right? To say, okay, to our boards. As I've had to say to my board, we, you know, I presented a proposal that we would take, you know, we have a $13 billion endowment, and I said, let's take a billion dollars and do social impact investing, mission-related investing. And, you know, it was as if, you know, you, you can't do, I mean, you know, that's the endowment. We are, we'll be sued. We'll be, just the whole list of all the reasons why not to. But the point I'm making is I had to get them to, I had to meet them where they are rather than saying, Shame on you, you're on this board and you really don't believe in justice. <laughs> to, 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 to meet them where they are. They, they are trustees. They, they see themselves at, at, that they are to preserve, right? And so I say, yes, I want you to preserve, but I want you to innovate and I want you to be bold. And, and so meeting people where they are is really important and it's also really hard because Sometimes meeting privileged people where they are can just, just do you in because <laughs> you just can't believe some of the things that people say. And I think that's true too, right? Because we, we were talking about all of these different forms of privilege and not just at the board level, but I was at a retreat two weeks ago and it was a black and Jewish coalition. And I was sitting next to this woman who's Jewish, and she said, I don't have any friends who are black. They're all, the, and I don't have any friends who are white. They're all Jewish people, right? And I leaned over to this black guy, and I was like, she said she doesn't have any friends who are not Jewish. And he's like, I don't really have any friends who aren't black. And I was, so it's not just privileged people, right? It's not just white people. Let's, let's tell the truth, right? Let's meet people where they are and be like, we're we're all just friends with, exactly. with our people, so we need to get out of that. Yes, please. Um, good morning, Darren. Thank you so much, Dina. Awesome job, of course. Um, 
You talked about courage, Darren. A uh, billion dollars out of 13 billion is a, is a huge step. And I think that many of us noticed when you made that call, um, it takes courage for our organizations to change. Um, and, and, and in a lot of ways that costs us uh, financially, it can. Um, and, and I guess my question is, how do we work with, with you and other funders to help shift, not the funding, but the funding landscape slightly um, away from programmatic grants that are sort of drip support that, that often cost us more than they help us. Um, the work and direction that, that we're trying to go, which is, I think, as a field, we talk about this a lot. If we're going to truly make change and impact, how do we, how do we work with y'all to do that? Because we are so dependent on, and not, not Ford specifically, but the, the landscape in general. Um, and, and, you know, we want to show courage as well there and we need some some help in that i think to some extent how do we do that how do how do we help impact that help you and and your fellow funders make those changes that, that we all know need to happen and i'm going to sit down and while you just sort of address us all thank you thank you i um and and let me be clear one of one of if any of you have i mean over my four years as president have followed any of my writings, my greatest impatience is with foundations around courage. And uh, because we don't have an excuse. As you just said, we have $13 billion. We don't have to raise money. We don't uh, have to worry about offending um, in the way that your institutions, and yet, most of us, uh, including my own institution, have not been as courageous as we need to be and taken the risk, given the, uh, the relative security. Uh, now, obviously, there are things we can't do and shouldn't do. But speaking to these issues, I mean, for me, you know, the Ford Foundation, uh, in terms of our own resources, is in no way capable of solving this problem. But we have more than our resources. We have our voice, and we have the prominence in the sector to speak truth to ourselves as a sector. And so your point about, I mean, I've written extensively about the fact that we fund projects that we actually don't fully pay for, that we ask organizations uh, to, uh, to fulfill a project grant, and then we don't put enough overhead in the grant to actually cover the cost of the project, right? And so, you know, I was in a meeting with a, with a philanthropist who said very proudly, I don't, my foundation doesn't give overhead because we want every dollar to go to service and to, uh, directly to help. And I said, you know, and again, I'm constantly getting in trouble in these meetings, so, um, <laughs> but, you know, I just couldn't help myself because, you know, I said, so actually what you're saying is you're telling me, because we give that same organization general support, that I'm paying, Ford Foundation is paying for your project. So I just want to be really, really clear that actually I don't appreciate that. 
because, and it's not helpful. It's not helpful to, most importantly, the very organizations and the people you purport to want to help. And it's not helpful to the field because you are proudly propagating this idea that none of your, which is a really bad way of doing philanthropy. And I think we have to, and so I've written about this extensively, I speak about it all the time. We have a project underway where we're looking at what the true cost of overhead ought to be on, on grants. And even when I became president, we had a 10% overhead. I mean, I, so we doubled it to 20% now. And we'll see, we, we really do look at things on a case-by-case -case basis. But that's number one. And number two is this question of See, of, of getting philanthropy to see that our missions can't be accomplished without strong, resilient, fortified institutions. And moving us out of the mentality of we just fund you as an intermediary to do something we want to do, which is a really bad way of doing philanthropy in my view, to one of in your community, you are an anchor for culture, heritage, preservation, whatever it may be. And if a philanthropist in your community is interested in those issues in education, they ought to see your institution as an anchor, not as an intermediary sort of institution for their grant but they should see you as a vital institution. I mean, this is the thing, again, going back to de Tocqueville that she said was so, he said was so unique about America, was that we were creating these civic institutions and that we, had, we were building this idea that local communities would be creating these institutions. Well, institutions are the backbone of a flourishing democracy, of a flourishing community. And so it is not always easy, but I think it's really important any opportunity you get to make the case, not to say, oh, fund my organization with general support, but to talk about why institutions matter in a community is just vitally important. And with that, I am going to summarize everything that you've said <laughs> in about two minutes. Um, I think, you know, the first thing is that history is complicated. The second thing is that change is hard. Uh, the third is that the time is now to be courageous leaders. And I think the fourth thing is that as people who are living history at the moment, we have a responsibility um, as people who are within the museum field, we have a mission to not only understand for ourselves the importance of what's happening today, but to help others understand that as well, to meet them where they are, identify, um, help them reflect on self-identity, and then think about who we are as a nation, who we are as Americans, and who we want to be, right? And so, in my opinion, our call to action for this conference is to remember all of those things, to go in, this is the kickoff, so we want to go into this conference opening ourselves up to think about 
how we can tell deeper stories, how we can understand that change is hard, but do it anyway, how we can, as individuals and as organizations, we can be courageous in this particular moment. Um, and so with that, I'm going to say thank you so much for helping us kick off this conference. We appreciate you being here in, in Texas. We appreciate you being candid and speaking truth to power. Um, and hopefully everyone has left, is leaving inspired by what you've said. Thank you, Tina. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Can you hear me? Thank you. Uh, my name is John Dichtel. I'm the president of AASLH, and I want to thank you, Darren and Dina. That was, uh, that was amazing. You've given me so many things to think about, and, and I really love the conversational tone, which really helped me process many of the things that you were saying. Um, so I think many of the, the, the anchor institutions represented in, in the membership of ASLH will take this home and hopefully do great things. I have a, just a couple logistical announcements. One is that the buses to return to the convention center will pick you up where they dropped you off, right outside here. Um, the second is we'd like to take some photographs of, of you, Darren. Um, so before people come down and, and mob him with questions or maybe intermix with the photographs, give us a little bit of space for some of those. Uh, and I actually have a third uh, logistical. Our closing keynote on Saturday morning, you might have heard Congressman Joaquin Castro had to cancel. Um, we have found an excellent replacement, a University of Texas professor of history and public affairs who has written a, a really wonderful book called The Impossible Presidency. Uh, Jeremy Surrey will be filling in. And his book, uh, I think he's going to be speaking somewhat about his book uh, about the highest office in the land and how the, the presidency of the United States has really become an impossible office for a, a person to hold. And, um, and he's um, um, incredibly eloquent when he when he speaks about this. I saw this on CNN, um, so I hope you all come to the closing. Um, so thank you very much. We're going to take some photos, and and you can. I walked here from the convention center. It's a beautiful walk across campus. It took less than 15 minutes, and it's all downhill. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Good evening, yeah.